Most holy and gracious God, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit, that the words of my mouth may not be the ramblings of a mortal man, but may carry a ring of eternity. Be in the minds and the hearts of the congregation as they meditate upon your word. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I don't know why, but it seems about between the ages of three and seven, there is always a crowd of pharisaical preschoolers and kindergartners and elementary schoolers that have to report on every little detail when somebody does something wrong. Preacher, they did this. Preacher, they did that. Daddy, this happened. Daddy, that happened. Oh, I've got a blinker problem. Um, if you can't figure out what that means, I don't use my blinker every time I turn. Um, I occasionally might even go a little bit over the speed limit. Speeding is not something that I do very often, by the way. I've only had two tickets in my life. One of them I got out of because I wasn't speeding, and I went and argued it to the judge. But there's always that one kid that will get in your car and look over your shoulder, and when the uh, speed limit passes over, now it's 65, you know, when, when my kids were younger, it was still in the 55 range, and they'd holler, I'm calling 911. <laughs> you can't tell me that you haven't experienced that. Some preschooler or a kindergartner or a child in early elementary school going completely pharisaical on you because you have just moved a hair's breadth across the speedometer dial and have crossed into breaking the law. Oh, what a terrible thing. Even the minors of infractions cannot, uh, cannot even occur, even on the road, 55 to 57. For those of you that still remember those days that supposedly saved gas mileage, that's why we had to go slower. But now it's even, it's even higher. You can't cross that line in some people's minds. There's a glorious new show out. Um, I've never been a real big fan of the show called The Big, Band, the big Bang Theory, but I enjoy seeing snippets of the characters. And there's one um, very rigid character named Sheldon on there, and they've done a recent spoof on, um, on his younger days called Young Sheldon. And I watched the pilot the other day, and this child is beyond intelligent. Um, he can figure out just about anything, but the rules have to be followed. And he, well, he was put into high school when he should still be uh, in the sixth grade, and, and he's placed in this environment with all of these older children and, and teachers, and he's the only person in the class that has read uh, the school rule book. I must confess, I read the school rule book every year to make sure I could get around the rules. It had nothing to do with following them, but to make sure I knew what boundaries I had to be real careful of when they were crossed. But this child was not like that. He, uh, he, he had to follow the rules to the T to make sure that everything was just right and orderly. And one of the rules was that no mustaches were allowed. Well, he thought his 
dark-haired female teacher had a little bit too much fuzz on her upper lip and decided to tell her that she was breaking the rules. The law had been broken, and you must fix it immediately. All those laws. There are laws that I wish didn't exist. Some of them um, have occurred in our society recently that I think go against our, my complete moral code. Um, the IRS for one of them, just in general. <laughs> no, but there's others uh, that we constantly battle about. And, and the regulations seem to get thicker and thicker every year. Our law code grows in our nation, and it has almost always grown. And in fact, in any civilization, uh, there is a tendency to add more and more regulation. Regulation can, after a while, become very burdensome. There are even places in this world which we all know about seriously regulate their religious laws and behaviors. I'll scoot back from this. I feel like I got a drum behind me every time I talk. So those areas of the world can be quite frightening to those of us that live in, particularly in the United States of America and other Western nations, because as much as I may disagree with the behavior of someone's religious preferences, I do not ever want to watch somebody be put to death or physically maimed because of those behaviors. Some of our allies in the world even, even behave in such manner a thief might still have a hand cut off. Women may be publicly flogged because their scripture at some point said that was the necessity. We have seen, yes, even in recent years, and it is still going on, reports of women and men being stoned to death. Can you think of how horrible that type of execution must be? There are places where women are almost, well, they are tortured to the point because they don't cover themselves fully in the garb of their religion. Sometimes law can go from being very lax to almost anything goes, sorts of, of almost an, an, an anarchist, let's just see who comes out on top, to being so stifling that there is no room for budge, budging or grace in it. You think about that. Not much room for grace in your existence because of so much law. The society that Jesus um, existed in was a society governed by a lot of law. Uh, there was the big overarching laws that were set about by uh, the Roman Empire, uh, which to many extent actually had a lot of um, religious freedom in that civilization. 
most of their thoughts were, well, if the people just kind of behaved, then we'd let them worship whatever other gods they had. But if they started to get unruly, then we would come in and, and squash the rebellion in the order uh, to have peace, such it was as the Pax, Rom um, Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace that occurred, the largest stretch of peacetime in any major civilization's um, um, society. Within its borders, they were always out raiding and causing wars. But some of those religions that they ruled over would take their laws to the extreme upon themselves. And those laws even existed up into modern times like today. I was reading uh, recently a book by Mark Twain called Innocence Abroad. If any of you have ever read any of Twain's works, this is one that, that most people don't delve into. It's his travels right after the Civil War uh, through Europe, Northern Africa, and into the Holy Land. And he's describing how the Jews, even in his time, and, and the Muslims, even in his time, still would not interact with each other or with Christians because their religious preferences were too different. And he described how uh, the, very, the very strict rules of certain Jewish sects would, would not have anything to do with those travelers because they were Christian dogs. And in the same aspect, he was also told don't go within uh, the boundaries of one of the Mohammedans' uh, households because you might be slain because you are a Christian dog. And if you can imagine the workings of that libertarian character of Mark Twain as he's wandering through all these strange lands with his free American thoughts, what that must have come across to him, especially after a nation that had to go through some major healing following the bloodiest war and the invention of modern warfare and the civil war that had occurred. Laws. Personally, I like to have a lawful society. There are some laws I don't particularly agree with, but there's others that I'm very thankful for. A couple of years ago, we had a, uh, an arsonist break into our house and it was and this arsonist had also wreaked havoc in our neighborhood and almost killed a woman, and he was stalking uh, my wife at that time. Now, he was a juvenile, 16 at the time, um, so we didn't get all the details. We had to face him. We were allowed to at least do that. But one of the laws is that when he gets out of jail, they have to tell us that he's out of jail. I like that law. I also like the law that put him there. I also like laws that kind of keep order within the society. I think they are necessary things. But sometimes laws can be taken to the wrong extreme. And it almost often happens within a religious context. Within a religious context. When I was growing up, there were two main churches in town. Um, my church, which you can probably guess, was United Methodist. And then there's another one. I won't name it because y'all probably figure out. Nor where I went to uh, school when I grew up because um, you figure out that the pastor of that church at that time eventually became the president of a very large denomination. 
they had the most aggressive youth pastor that I have ever encountered in my life. Occasionally, my youth pastor would come and eat um, lunch with us at, at the local high school, and we'd kind of gather around that table. Um, he wasn't there every day. He was a seminary student, uh, had another job, you know, so he couldn't focus solely on just the church work. We didn't pay him enough to feed him. So <laughs> he had other things that he, he had to tend to, but he'd come and have lunch with us on occasion. The youth pastor from the other church, even though that we were a very large church and had lots of resources, and, and some of the wealthiest people in the entire county went to, that, to our church, the other church always just seemed to have more. I don't know how that happened. And there's one denomination that's really good at that, always getting more, dragging it in, bringing it in, bringing it in, bringing it in, bringing it in. And um, the youth pastor would always come in and proceed to tell us we were wrong. We didn't fit his pharisaical, very much pharisaical mindset. And there's not much difference between most Christian denominations, to tell you the truth. For most of us, we generally get along. We have maybe a little different preferences and worship styles, some minor theological issues. And for most of my interactions throughout my ministry, I have found very few Christian ministers that can't get along with each other and very few Christian churches that can't get along with each other fairly well. But man, this guy had all the answers and was set out to tell us about it. So occasionally we would go to an event at his church and one time we made the mistake of dancing at a concert that we paid $20 a piece to get into that they held. And before we knew it, my youth group was come down upon by what appeared to be bodyguards. They were huge. I'm sure my mother remembers that incident. <laughs> and, and, and ushered us out of the church. You know, in 1989, $20 was a lot of money. That's starting to be a long time ago. That was a lot of money <laughs> to get into a concert. Belong. Jesus addresses that in the scripture that we will be reading this morning. As um, Mike, when he asked me to fill in for him this morning, um, gave me an assignment on the Sermon on the Mount, and it gave me one of them that I'm like, gee, thanks. That's one of the scriptures that all preachers try to avoid because it raises too many, <laughs> it raises too many tough questions. And there's about seven or nine or 20 different points in this one particular, in this one particular scripture. So I will try to focus on one and not try to get into all the rest of them. So if you leave here saying, well, he didn't say anything about that or he didn't say anything about this, uh, yeah, right, because you won't be going home till supper tonight if I were to hit all of those points. Uh, I have some postgraduate work with doctoral work at Mercer University, almost 20 years of ministry, and I can talk about this stuff for a week solid. So consider it a blessing. <laughs> and he said, well, just follow where the Holy Spirit leads you. Well, I know where 
the Holy Spirit didn't want to lead me this morning. But there is something that I've always found very fascinating, particularly with the study of the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you that may be visiting with us or exploring Christianity for the first time coming into into these doors, the Sermon on the Mount is a discourse by Jesus, um, an extended teaching session where not all the disciples have been called yet. And there's actually another kind of episode of this that you find in the Gospel of Luke called the Sermon on the Plain. And what the Sermon on the Mount is, is where St. Matthew has taken what he probably eyewitnessed and put it down into into the Gospel as as points from this episode that he can remember. Uh, I believe a God-breathed inspiration like it says in Timothy, all scripture is God very therefore useful, taken and, and placed in, in this short pamphlet so that people could carry with them the, um, the ideas that Christ was getting across. And what has set up the scene with the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is giving ideas on how to live like a righteous person. Now, living like a righteous person was not an uncommon concept to a first-century Jew. They were versed in righteousness. They knew everything about how to be righteous, but their righteousness was based on Levitical law a very strangling law code that was given off the, off the mountain when Moses came down. You know how that story goes. Moses comes down with, with uh, some stone tablets where the Ten Commandments are written on it. And when he looks at the, um, the people down below where he has come off the mountain and he's been holding the stone tablets, he, he looks below, and all of a sudden, they're, they're worshiping up a golden calf. They've, they've reverted to their times that were in Egypt, and he smashes it. He's upset. So he goes back up the mountain, comes down again with another tablet, and a whole lot more rules. You know how that goes in your household? You give your kid a a task to do. You say, don't break this rule, uh, and they go and break that rule. And what happens with that rule? (laughs) Oh, you get 20 more, you know? (laughs) If you can't do this part right, then you don't get to do that part, and you've got to prove yourself further. That's kind of always the way that I've looked at how the Levitical law code came into effect, you know? I gave you some simple rules to follow people. Now, guess what? You won't have to learn the hard way. You don't get to eat catfish. You don't get to barbecue. You don't get to have all of them good things. Follow the rules. (laughs) I'm going through the process of teaching kids how to drive. Um, My oldest son will tell you that he's been put out on the side of the road before. You can't follow the rules, gal. (laughs) (laughs) My youngest son has just... Uh, given his, gotten his learner's license. He has one certain rule you better follow before he's getting behind a car or behind that wheel of a car with me. I'm going to tell you what it is. But he has a tendency to be really absent-minded. And I don't want to die. 
<laughs> Worse, I don't want to be sued by you because he hit 20 years, <laughs> you know? So the rules kind of kind of blossom when you don't want to follow them, and, and to some extent you feel like you have to prove yourself. So the scripture this morning comes from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Holy smokes. I was, yeah, I felt like I needed to die hit the ground. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> feeling for gunshots. <laughs> you know, there's been times when I've seen people come in the back door of the churches I've been in and been a little worried. I didn't see, whoo. Yeah, no kidding. All right, let me figure it out. Oh, yeah, I'm preaching. I'm not shot. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not any yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, who will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But for whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's a whole lot in that, in those few verses, particularly at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But you need to understand that the Sermon on the Mount, if you've read through it, I don't know if that was part of your homework assignment or not, getting into this series, but to read through the entire Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is actually filled with religious law. It is filled with religious rules. Um, spiritual disciplines, things to follow and to do, and advice on how to do them in order to be a righteous person, in order to be a righteous person. It is full of that, and Jesus' take on it. And uh, there is a very strong condemnation in those few verses concerning religious law, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is frightening. That is a scary statement to hear something like that uh, because the people who have been sitting down here at, at the foot of Jesus, at the Sermon of the Mount, the Mount of the Beatitudes, they're hearing that now I'll never get in to the gates. I'll never make it. There is no way that I am going to make it into God's heaven 
if I have to be more righteous than those guys who dress up in their robes and wear their hair a certain way, come out with those shawls, get up and do their prayers all day, give so much of their money because I don't have that much. I, I'm never going to make it. How can I be more righteous than those showboats? That's a scary statement. While the Pharisees in the back are thinking, wait a minute, where's this guy going with this? See, there is some literary genius in the way that Matthew put down uh, the words into the Sermon on the Mount. My favorite painting is uh, a painting by Rembrandt called St. Matthew and the Angel. And what it has is it has an old man sitting uh, at a table in the, in the hushed earth tones of that Rembrandt was known for painting in, and he's, and he's leaning over uh, some parchment and, and writing, but in his ear is whispering an angel. So this God-breathed divine word here has literary genius so that people can understand it, and, and the Sermon on the Mount begins with telling people how to be righteous before he addresses that statement with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the Beatitudes are somewhat a, a prelude of how to do that. And then Jesus says, I'm not coming to get rid of, of all that the law and the prophets. There's good stuff in there. But there's more to being righteous than following the law on how to build a latrine out of Deuteronomy. There's more to being righteous than not eating a catfish or a shrimp. There's more to being righteous than some very harsh punishments and executions. And Jesus then starts into his discourse on what some of that righteousness looks like. Matthew, right after that, goes into... Uh, a discourse on murder. Well, you've said that you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I said to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus takes it beyond just the physical act of killing somebody, but deals with the thought process as well. Jesus goes in into the idea of Adultery, and it says it, it goes beyond just the physical act of it, but the thought process of it as well. Jesus is saying to be righteous, it's more than just following a strict set of rules. It's that you really want to change your core being of who you are. It's a new kind of righteousness that does surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a new kind of righteousness, a, a new thought process of how to have a relationship with God and seek His holiness. When we are ordained as United Methodist ministers, we're put up on on the big stage in front of everybody. North Georgia's been down at 
Athens for several years. And one of the questions that we are asked is, do we believe that we will be perfected in love in this life? Now, that's a hard question to answer uh, because I know I'm fallible, and I know there's times I don't love. And I know there's times uh, that, that I let more anger seep into my heart. I'm a, and, and I thought even back then, 20 years ago, looking at the bishop, how can I even answer that honestly? And that is part of the point. Knowing our fallibilities, knowing that there's absolutely nothing I can do separated from God that can bring me to be a righteous man. I have to have God at my core. So then what shall we do to become righteous? Remember I told you a moment ago about literary genius in the Bible. I, uh, these, many of the books of the Bible, if, if you look at them, were written very well by people who knew how to communicate, and they used all of the literary techniques that you can think of, foreshadowing, bookending. Well, there's a couple of bookends in the um, Sermon on the Mount, and one of them worth pointing out is that Jesus begins, a bookend is where you begin with something and end with it, uh, just in case. If some of you are more mathematically inclined than literature inclined, I understand that. I can't do two plus two sometimes. Um, so one of the ideas that occurs within the Sermon on the Mount is that it begins with talking about being a righteous person. Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it ends the same way by talking about how the law and the prophets shall be fulfilled. The golden rule, Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. All of the Sermon on Mount was about that point. Everything in there is about fulfilling the law and the prophets. And Jesus, at the beginning of it, says that I have come to fulfill that law. And how did he fulfill it? By fulfilling the sacrificial system so that the way that your righteousness gets beyond the scribes and the Pharisees isn't about following all those Levitical rules. Some of them are good, some of them are kind of crazy. It isn't about that, but the two greatest commandments. Jesus is asked, what must I do to be righteous? And he says, what are the two commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. You see, Jesus' fulfillment of the law comes in those two right there. That is the new righteousness, to love God and love your neighbor. 
loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, and loving your neighbor as yourselves, out of Leviticus chapter 19. Those are the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and here Jesus has come saying, do that. So what are those primary laws again? Well, you look back to the Ten Commandments. The first section of the Ten Commandments is dealing with how you love God. The second section is dealing with how you love your neighbor, fulfilling those laws, some basic rules. And when you fulfill loving your neighbor, because we all believe that we have the image of God in us, that we were made in the image of God, that these earthen vessels are temples of the Holy Spirit, that when we love our neighbor, we're also loving God. Now, that doesn't mean just to let people do whatever they want. You know, there, uh, there's different types of laws that you have to run through. There's, there's civil, ordering a society. There's ceremonial. We have, our, we have our rules, too. And then ultimately the moral law, the difference between right and wrong. But as I said earlier in this message, There is no person that I really want to see physically maimed or harmed because they don't line up with who I am. And I know there's been times in my life where I have pressured people to be like me. Probably put too much pressure on them, but I have learned over my lifetime, and even when I've failed at it miserably, but Jesus makes a lot of sense that the fulfillment of the law is more to show love of God than love of neighbor. Love them into heaven instead of scare them out of hell. And people will be drawn to you. And then you can start working on their character and their moral compass and, and their faith building because we don't all come with the same set of spiritual muscles into this relationship and we can grow together into the image of God. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And it is a new righteousness for which you need to hear. And that new righteousness is the law of God and the fulfillment of it is love. Love is patient. It's kind. It's not rude. It does not boast. How much do you love each other? How much do you love each other? Challenge yourself in that new kind of righteousness this week. Pray with me, please. Oh Lord, our God, we are fallible human beings. And where we have fallen short of showing grace and love, forgive us. We open our hearts 
and our minds and our souls to you that you might instruct us more on how to grow in that grace and that love that you showed all that you might grow this kingdom of yours in the only way that we may ever find true peace on earth. In Christ's name.